Welcome to Health Trust Clinical Services Candid Conversations. This is a conversation series where we highlight physicians, clinicians, and supply chain leaders who are innovating, caring for those in need, and working to improve human life. In this conversation, I talk with two clinical solutions directors from Health Trust, Karen Bush and Sarah Michael. Karen, Sarah, and the self-named COVID squad led the effort to develop education around PPE conservation, COVID-19 care guidance, and clinical evidence reviews concerning alternative products for the Health Trust membership. I was inspired by their passion, dedication, and commitment to the hospitals we serve, and most important, the patients and community. So hello, Karen and Sarah. Thank you so much for joining us today. Um, I'm really excited to talk a little bit about some of the work that you guys have accomplished and are still accomplishing um, during this pandemic. But maybe to start, it would be great just to understand, um, and Karen, you might be the best to answer this. What? Tell me a little more about what is the role of research and education pre-pandemic? What did you guys do before for the membership? So the research and education is mainly responsible for all of the education and clinical resources regarding the product that we have on contract or procedures that the products are used in. We provide uh, clinical documents. We provide um, comparative product feature summaries. We have webinars. Um, we also have resources that come out uh, on the source in the source magazine. Um, so there are, are a plethora of resources that we create for um, our members and the public. Um, we have our public education page uh, that's uh, education.healthtrustpg.com. So you can go to that uh, resource and, and look at the many documents that we created um, regarding those, those categories, the products and the procedures. So when the pandemic came forward around March, Health Trust Organization really completely restructured the organization to ensure that we could support our membership with all of their supply needs, but also with our um, the educational needs and guidance that they needed as they walked through the pandemic. So I understand that your team that that you led, Karen, was called the COVID Squad, and the COVID Squad was formulated really just to do that. You know, it was a group of nurses that came together to lead and guide the organization on how to respond. So that just seems like a huge task. How did your team stay up to date on what needed to be – how did your team – stay up to date on the newest information that was coming out, let's say from the CDC or the FDA. Were you literally just stalking these sites every day or, um, uh, or on committees or calling people? That just seems like an overwhelming task. How did you all go about doing that? So we actually had a, a pretty coordinated approach um, to start uh, we were using the CDC and um, WHO as our, our primary source of information, Gather, started gathering links, and it actually started with just putting the links on a guidance document 
to help people to know where to go to get information. Then we created the COVID squad and it, it rapidly because COVID was a rapidly changing um, and evolving uh, disease and treatment process. Uh, we pulled together, as you said, a group of nurses, and each nurse had an area that they focused on. So we did have someone who was assigned to the FDA site, somebody that was assigned to the CMS site, somebody that was assigned to CDC, and we would scan those um, sites. And then we also would get requests from our different members to say, you know, what do you know about this? Or, you know, and so we would research and we would provide the best evidence that we could provide that was currently available on those different tools or um, products or methods for um, decontamination or conservation of PPE, those, those different types of things. Wow, that sounds pretty intense. So uh, just give me an idea of volume of work. So was this, you know, a document a week or a web uh, presentation um, a week? Or what did this really look like? No, no, it was, so initially um, when we were, our initial um, effort, we would put out, um, boy, maybe five to 10 documents a week. I mean, we were, we were rapidly consuming information and turning out um, clinical documents. Uh, especially early because people just needed to know from, from things that we as nurses never in a million years thought we would be doing research on. And we, we also tapped into our physician advisor program. And, you know, we, we worked with some of the physician advisors on some of these documents because, you know, they were in the front lines doing the work and, um, and we're up on some of these things as well. So we, we would tap into them to, to provide us with some direction. Uh, but it was a very, um, quite a few documents in the beginning. Um, it has since tapered off, but has not stopped. And, um, you know, we, we all kind of thought, you know, once we bent the curve and things kind of settled down, we would be able to, get back to our book of business, but it continues as late as this week, we put out six documents on updates from COVID because things continue to evolve. That's awesome. So beyond guidance, general guidance around maybe PPE conservation, which I want to understand more about, and this question is for either one of you, um, you know, did you also get questions around um, new alternative approaches than we typically used due to the environment within which we were in. Um, so let's say different types of masks um, and if we could use those or different types of processes. Um, tell me a little more about that. So it's Sarah and yes, I think we got a, a, a lot of questions about <clears throat> how how to use things and they constantly change. So we not only wrote all those articles, but we have to update them and we still continue to update them because it changes. And it changes with the amount of supply there is, 
the amount of demand that goes with it. So <clears throat> most recently, we had a uh, article written on a sh the shortage of caps in the surgical area. So that was uh, asked by our members and is a new hot topic. And so we did put out recently an infograph on that explaining what the differences were in the evidence that we found around it. That's awesome. So um, I'm just thinking about, you know, I'm a nurse also, and getting some of these questions as they come in, asking about different types of material masks or different types of things we've never seen before, or how do you even go about starting to do that research when that research really just didn't exist because there was so much innovation during this time? Well, um, this is Karen. I can talk to that a little bit. So when we first started doing this, like I said, we were we were evaluating things that as nurses we we never thought. You know, what? How many different materials can you make a mask out of? Um, and and there were some doozies that came across. Um, and when we started trying to tackle these as a group, we would we would talk regularly. Because, um, you know, we had concerns about, you know, we wanted to make sure we put out information that was accurate, as accurate as possible to date, and as safe as possible for um, patients and staff. And so we would start with any guidance documents that were out there. Um, <coughs> we would look back at um, any type of um, ATSM guidelines of, you know, or the um, WHO commodity of what things should be made out of and what the product should be. And certainly for nurses, we're used to doing research. So it wasn't a stretch for us to do the research. Um, it was a stretch at where we had to go to get it. <laughs> so we had to, you know, there was a little bit of a learning curve on our part too, but we would tap into resources from all over the place and look at different, you know, different uh, re resources that were outside of our normal um, medical resources. And then we would do our very best to make sure that we were putting together a document that um, provided accurate information. And, and we did not have a single document that went out of our, our team that was not quality checked by two different clinical people and then it was sent up to be um, additionally quality checked by our um, our vice president <laughs> and our uh, CMO would review particularly the, the ones that were more sensitive. And we also tapped into our physician advisors to review a couple of things as well. So um, we had a lot of good people working on it and you know, that was, that was kind of how those developed. Well, I know that the leadership at Health Trust is very proud of this team, you know, to develop an organizational structure, um, to put in a process, to turn out five to 10 documents, research documents or presentations or infographics or podcasts or whatever was needed, uh, webinars sometimes, in a short amount of time, um, often a day. Um, I know that took more than 40 hours a week, and, and I hope the COVID squad knows how much we appreciate and continue to appreciate their work, because it, it was a huge task. I, I, 
So I want to at least pause a minute to make sure that this team knows how much we thank them. Um, but then also I want to transition a little bit and get a little more in the weeds on some of the things that I know um, hospitals just had questions around or would love more guidance on what you guys are seeing even now. But maybe we can start on, you know, the big topic, at least in March and April, and um, continue somewhat to be a big topic is just um, guidance and information on, you know, how do we truly, how do we, how do hospitals, how should they go about conserving PPE? So, I, again, this is Karen, and, and Sarah, you can jump in. Um, I think that it's important, especially when you're in a, in a crisis mode, which many hospitals are, um, it, it's important to understand the, the centralization of PPE uh, is, is part, part of a key strategy. Having um, a, a one person who is overseeing, um, I know like different hospitals call them different things like PPE czar or a PPE lead or whatever term you want to use, but that person, you know, is, is responsible for ensuring that the PPE is all collected and appropriately distributed. But I will say, I think one of the key things that from a clinical perspective that people can do is educate, educate, educate. Uh, you cannot educate your nurses enough on what situations to use, what PPE, how to don and doff it, you know, depending on what strategies you're using, what, um, what stage, what, what phase you're in, whether it's contingency or crisis capacity, what does that look like for your staff? Are you decontaminating? Educate on the processes for decontamination of how to collect what PPE and where it goes and what PPE can be decontaminated and what can't. Um, I just think that you cannot educate your staff enough on a, appropriate use, um, what, what you're doing to conserve the PPE, and, you know, what are your processes if you're implementing any kind of decontamination? Um, I, think, I think that's a critical piece. Um, what are some of the most recent developments with regards to, you know, specifically masks? I know we heard so much from March and April. It feels like um, this team updated documents around masks possibly daily for some period of time. But what are we really hearing now? So uh, it, it's interesting you ask that because I, I think one of the biggest strugg struggles with regard to masks in particular is that um, we had all these ideas, we have all these ideas out there, um, you know, for conservation and for, but it's been a a bit of a challenge getting, you know, specific guidance that wraps around that. And, and recently, the CDC came out with a um, with their uh, decontamination um, pathway. It was um, implementation of uh, uh, FFR use 
um, which, you know, it also included reuse um, after decontamination. It, it walks through the different strategies, and then it also provides a flow chart um, to determine if you need to enter crisis capacity. And, and we weren't really getting a lot of guidance around that. Like, are you in crisis capacity or are you, you know, so I think it was good that the CDC recently released that. We, we're, we're highlighting that in one of our documents that'll be on the website. It's a, a mass document. And um, so I think that that's helpful to get those, that guidance, but I think that's also been a challenge, but that's something that's new that came out. And then um, I know the, um, I think Sarah, you can talk maybe a little bit about the FDA and um, some recent things that they've done. Sure, the FDA yeah, did just reissue a umbrella emergency use authorization. That's a mouthful, <laughs> a new EUA. And really, it was replacing the one that was put out before. The one that was put out before waived the 510K requirements and also did not require submission of test data for verification. And there were no countries that were restricted. And the one that was just issued um, in August actually is restricting China. So it basically says that 510 clearance is required for China. Any other country can have 510 clearance or they can submit the appropriate test data to the FDA. So they can do one or the other, but China has to do 510K clearance. So there is a difference on those masks and it'll probably affect the way we see masks coming into the U.S., especially from China. Hmm. And that was on surgical. I think that was on surgical masks. Hmm. Yeah in regards to surgical masks. So what about, you know, there, there's been some um, recent developments and questions that we've had some members from our members regarding PPE. What are, what's coming down the pike now? You said that some things are coming down. I think Karen, you said some things were, we're still getting things coming down the pike. Um, so for a question for either one of you all, what, what types of questions are we getting now? I think so, the one main one we got recently was on the shortage of surgical caps, and people were really asking, is there evidence showing one type of cap is better than the other? So we did a bunch of research, and we showed, we saw that there was definitely a strong personal preference, so people either liked uh, to wear their surgeon's cap versus a bonnet, um, but there's no evidence out there that actually shows one is better than the other to use. So there's no increase in surgical site infections that have been shown clinically. So that means that really what we need to focus on is making sure a cap is, uh, I like to call it a part of your scrubs. So if your scrubs get dirty and your caps are dirty, you change them both, regardless if it's what type it is or if it's disposable or cloth they need to be changed at the same rate your scrubs are, and they definitely need to be changed every day. So a new one needs to be put on um, every day. Yeah, so I would say that um, the decontamination, we still are getting many questions on decontamination. Um, you know, the 
CDC did put out their statement that, you know, they felt the most promising was UVC, heat and humidity, and vaporized hydrogen peroxide. Those were the kind of the three that they highlighted. But, you know, I, I think, and I could, we could do a whole podcast on decontamination, mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, just as a, a quick highlight, uh, I think it's important for people to understand that the VHP and um, steam sterilization are the only two that are FDA EUA approved. Um, and there are limitations on every process. So it's really important to know what the limitations of each process are because like the UVC is only, it's only been tested on certain masks. Um, and heat and humidity the same way. It's only been tested for certain masks. And so, and then of course, vaporized hydrogen peroxide, you can't use masks that have cellulose. Um, and so I think it's just really important. And we, again, we'll include this link in our, our document that we put out, but I think that, um, you know, it's important for people to understand the differences um, and what the limitations are of each type of system, because there are a lot of companies promoting many, many different products. And, you know, you need to be careful when they say FDA approved, because it doesn't necessarily mean that they're specifically FDA approved for decontamination of masks. So um, it's important to understand that. And then one more thing, the FDA, I just want to point out, the other question we've been getting is a lot of um, questions on PAPRs um, and, you know, alternatives to uh, an N95 mask. And the FDA did put out a document. It it was just, I want to say, it crossed my plate today. So I, I think it was put out maybe yesterday or the day before. But it talks about considerations for selecting respirators at your facility and it it has some links in it i think it's a valuable tool and and we'll be putting that out there as well um so and and we'll make sure that link is in there but i wanted to include that because that that's kind of a hot off the press so you know people are still talking about this because they're still submitting you know documents and guidance um on these on these particular topics what about with Dr. Fauci's current guidance or newest guidance from um, from the CDC concerning eyewear? Anything on that? Yeah, he did recently have a talk where he mentioned um, goggles, and and I think what happened was the story, like many stories, was twisted a little bit and taken out of context, and people were saying, "Oh, now we need to wear goggles or eye shields everywhere." And really what he was saying in conversation form was, theoretically, you should protect all of your mucosal surfaces. So if you have goggles or eye shields, you should use it. And that's what he said. And then he went on to say, but it's not universally recommended, which is true. So I can agree with the fact that, yeah, if you have goggles and you want to make sure you're not touching your eyes, you know, 100 times a day while you're adjusting your mask, in theory, it might be good to wear them, but it's not universally recommended. It's recommended in areas of moderate to substantial community transmission to wear eye protection, but only with patient encounters. So that means if you're in one of those areas and you're around a patient, then you may want to, um, but otherwise it's not recommended. 
you know, now many hospitals are doing universal masking, meaning that all employees, all visitors, and sometimes limited visitors, all patients, they all wear masks. Um, you know, and, and as I think about other large crises that happened um, in the United States, you know, some of these things change the way that we do things forever. And so I'm wondering, what do you think will stay either in the community or in the hospital system, even after we have a vaccine um, and we we feel safer, you know, at least from COVID-19, you know, what do you think will change and stay in the world after this um, pandemic is not as large of a concern? Well, I'm going to... I'm going to first go with the very obvious one. I think people will be more mindful about washing their hands. Um, I think that uh, we will have a reduced incidence. My, my prediction, and of course, this is only my opinion, I think we're going to have a reduced incidence of the flu because I think people are going to be more careful. And I think that that will be a trend moving forward. I think even when people re relax, they will realize how long you actually have to wash your hands because everybody knows how to sing happy birthday now <laughs> <laughs> in order to make sure that they are truly clean. Um, so I, I do think, I mean, again, I think that's the obvious one. Um, so sorry, Sarah, if that was the one you were going to talk about. <laughs> but, yeah, I, but think, I, I, I think feel, hand washing I feel like for sure. Can, yeah, I think we're going to be a healthier society because, we are more more mindful. Now I'm going to tell you about the one that might not be as obvious, but is very concerning to me. As a as a nurse practitioner, um, I did a lot of research on the use of presence in the role of the nurse practitioner, meaning the connection with the patient. And I will say that I have a great concern that because of all of this social distancing, we will lose our ability to connect as a society and human touch is incredibly important. So my hope is that once we do have everything under control and that we're all feeling safer, that we won't completely stay away from touching other people or maintaining an incredible social distance because I think the value of human touch is incredibly important. And for, for the time being, we need to ensure that we're maintaining our, you know, our social distancing and wearing our masks. And, but once we get control of this, I really hope as a society, we remember the importance and the value of connecting with other individuals. Absolutely, I agree. Sarah, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I definitely uh, am in agreement with hand washing. I hope that people have learned the importance of that, including you know children and people at home and elders. And I'm I'm not sure about masks. You know, I think that people will learn the appropriate times to wear them and the appropriate times not to. So I hope we get a good balance of when and when they are not needed. Um, and I think cleaning of surfaces and just doing the general things that we all thought everybody was doing but can't figure out why there are no Clorox wipes so hopefully they're buying them and using them so I think those are just good practices to have. 
Absolutely. And just thinking about that, you know, are just your your opinions, you know, um, for the public, you know, I'll see people in the public with cloth masks or all kinds of different masks. What is appropriate for our public, um, you know, walking in to stores or malls or, or what have you during this time? What type of mask is appropriate for them to wear? I think the most recent studies have been saying, and there have been a lot out there, I've seen as many as, I think I counted the other day, 14 studies that actually showed that masks in general work. I know there's a big one that just came out, but they do work before there's a little hesitancy and there weren't the studies out there. But now that they're doing it, they're actually saying, wow, this does work. And when it works, maybe it does decrease the viral load more than we thought. So if you're going to catch it, maybe you don't catch it as bad. And even if it doesn't prevent at all, it still prevents enough. So I think, you know, wearing a mask, anything that's got more than one layer to it is a good thing. And as long as it's not leasy and you can't, I mean, to me, I always think of a candle test. So if you put your hand in front of you and you feel like you could blow out a candle, it's probably not a good material. There's no way to do tests on every single material out there. So you just have to use your discretion and make sure that it is blocking something um, coming through. It's never going to block everything. It's not an N95, um, but it does do good. What did I not ask that you really feel like is important for um, either our healthcare systems or internally here at Health Trust or even for the public um, to know with all the research that you guys have done? I think it's just important to know that we have a website out there with a link that we update all the time. So if there's any information that you need, um, you can go there and look for it. We're also here for you if there's anything out there that you can't find and want information on. I think that it's a great resource. We want you to download them. We want you to post the resources. That's what they're there for. The, the only other thing I would say is that our resources are not just for healthcare providers. Um, you know, we often will post our, our infographics on social media because they are patient education and community education pieces. I mean, we just put something out on making sure you get your flu shot, um, you know, how to wear a mask. Uh, you know, we how to do a telehealth visit. You know, what what do you need to prepare to do a, a telehealth visit? And these are great resources. You know, not just for healthcare people, but also for the the general public and community. So, you know, if you see that, make sure you like us on um, Facebook or LinkedIn or you know, follow us on those those medias because we do post those regularly and we provide the link to the site where you can download the PDF. So, you know, I, I would encourage people to do that. I guess I think that's the only other thing. Well, that is great. You know, Health Trust is so blessed to have this team who really um, almost, I'm going to say, enjoys doing, um, I hope we all enjoy doing our work, but I have never seen a group of um, clinicians really dig in and go farther than, than what is even expected to exceed expectations just because they really, the passion behind this team to make sure that our hospitals are safe um, and that our patients are safe and that the community is safe 
it just became such a, a purpose of this team. It was so obvious. Um, and I just really appreciate all that you guys have done. Thank you so much for this time with you guys today. And if there's nothing else, I think we can conclude. Thank you for listening to this episode of Health Trust's Candid Conversations podcast. Please visit education.healthtrustpg.com to find additional resources for clinicians and to listen to more of our Candid Conversations.